0: I'm Dave Busing, founder editor Chief of Comic Book Herald, and I'll be interviewing some of my favorite creators in comics about specific runs, graphic novels, or series, looking for their insights on the inspirations behind the work and ideas or hidden material readers may have missed. Today I'm excited to welcome Stephanie Phillips, writer of The Butcher of Paris from Dark Horse Comics. The Butcher of Paris is based on the true story of Marcel Patois, a serial killer active during World War II in German-occupied France, masquerading as a member of the resistance and targeting Jewish citizens seeking refuge. It's a harrowing account, one of history's greatest monsters, and the historical context that allowed for his reign of terror. Stephanie, thanks so much for joining. And first off, can you tell us uh, a little bit about how this project, how this comic book came to be?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. And uh, Butcher, Paris... I would say this is really born from a lot of just kind of historical reading that I do. I I really like studying history and um, I was reading a book about World War II and kind of saw like really a footnote to this trial that was going on and I was like I feel like I'm going to need way more information than a footnote so I spent kind of a lot of time following just any source I could find on the case and just kind of following their sources because I was noticing there was a bit of a discrepancy between um, a lot of the information out there that people were saying was was factual, and then I just kind of learned that that's in part due to how little, despite you know them knowing like okay this guy did it, there's really every shred of evidence available to prove this, uh, but he never admitted it. And uh, because he was doing such a good job of getting rid of um, the physical bodies, it was really hard to say how many people he actually killed. So a lot of what I was reading, some of those kind of, um, like, you know, one one book said he killed 60 people, another 200, which is like a huge gap. So uh, <laughs> it right, yeah. was kind
0: Concerning of- turning
1: range. <laughs> right, right. It is. It is. But then, uh, I mean, part of that too, when I started reading about the time period of um, Nazi-occupied Paris, what I started to realize was people were going missing on a daily basis. So I wanted to really show that fear and how Marcel kind of kicked up that fear. People were coming forward like, uh, you know, my relative went missing. Uh, you don't know, did the Gestapo take him? Did the serial killer take him? Did they actually find a way out of the city? Yeah, There was a lot of just unknowns. And so I think that kind of bled into the the case that I was writing about, and I think made it really interesting too. Which is, you know, we don't know. He got rid of so many of the bodies, um, so it just kind of made it. I think, I think darker, um, and for me personally, a, a bit scarier to to write about this as opposed to maybe some other uh, serial killers or other similar cases.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. There's a there's an element of mystery to it. I think mm-hmm. even today, that is definitely uh, definitely scary, and and kind of like you're saying too, these the name of this killer, either because I'm American and there's sort of mm-hmm. a true crime cottage industry, right? That has certain names that are like high profile, you know, it's just like Rex. significantly less familiar, you know, it just seems to have gotten a lot less coverage. So I found it, I found the the work here pretty riveting in that regard, just like, again, like you said, like this range of 60 to 200 people, it's it's absolutely enormous and open-ended and it's, it's kind of amazing to not have heard of. Um, curious when you're writing historical fiction how are you looking to balance like the history and the realness of what's happening with your own interest in filling in the unknown gaps so like inevitably you know this is a true story but it's not a documentarian's account so how do you balance that as as a storyteller
1: um that's a good question i think there's a lot of moving parts to the historical fiction in terms of Um, wanting to accurately represent the time period and the people that I'm talking about, and give some information to the reader. I want them to come away knowing something more than when they came into the story. Mm -hmm. Um, Also telling a story, which means there has to be some kind of fictitious element, Um, especially working with Detective Masu and his son Bernard, one of the big issues is for for those characters there's not they they are historically based but there isn't a whole lot about the father and son there mm-hmm. um so what i was getting about them was mostly from newspaper clippings and a few books and sources that maybe mentioned some quotes of of things that they had written that are recorded um but the the really father son dynamic is something that i had to fill in then um, you know, I played with my own relationship with, with my dad and that was, uh, I'd say, fairly easy to write, but, mm-hmm. I d- you know, what I have of a, a sense of their relationship is from some of their nicknames of like him being the Sh- the French Sherlock and things like that. So, yeah, um, yeah having to fill in gaps is something that um, I try not to do well, wildly because I don't like to attribute um, something to a character that they would not have said based on anything that I've read. And if I don't know enough, that's also really hard to kind of justify doing. So yeah, um, yeah. And, and about solving the case as well, Like, I think one of the things that I did on the last page and the reason I wanted to do this was I listed all of the names of the victims that we know and can attribute to Marcel. And there are many that will maybe never be named or there were missing persons that couldn't be attributed to him, but maybe were thought to be. Um, So that's why I also listed that like, this range could be far more than anyone that are far more than we know for sure so I want to make sure that I was kind of clear on the last page that this is um you know this is actually what happened to him and kind of fill in that blank but I only took a page to to do that so I'm um, trying to also you know put down my own interest in being like I don't want to just give somebody a bunch of bullet points um of like a yeah. Wikipedia article you know this still is a story um, there are some things that I had to leave out. We only have five issues, so then that becomes like a space thing. So yeah, it was a lot to balance, and it was a little like a puzzle, like having all the puzzle pieces in front of me and trying to figure out which ones will best best fit, um, mm-hmm. while still following you know my main thread and my main purpose of writing about Masu and his son, and the uh, the city as a whole, like how they reacted to it. If that if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. What I'm curious, what kind of elements did you Find it like wish you had had the space, um, to fit in, you know, in in terms of going moving at a faster clip through five issues. What were some of those things that you're like, I would have, I would have liked to examine this in greater detail?
1: I think for me, the biggest thing that I didn't do as much with was the French resistance. Uh, so one of the things that Marcel kept claiming is that he was a member of the French resistance. And you see, at some point in issue five, he references something called Fly Talks, which Um, something I couldn't really get into is he has this whole secret operative life that he kind of tells the court about using this um, covert name, Fly Talks. And he has this whole, like, here's what I did in the resistance. But every time they say, tell us other people, he says, no, I can't. It's a covert group. I'm not throwing anybody else under the bus kind of thing. Yeah. Which is, I I mean, I think that's really fascinating that, uh, and also how he was captured there there's definitely more of a nuanced capture going on than we showcase in the book when they find him he's doing they find him through a resistance network um he was posing as a doctor and doing um i maybe doctor work <laughs> we're not really sure what he was doing they like kind of <laughs> yeah. just found him hanging out and they're like wait a minute you're you're not supposed to be here um like, you know, they he was impersonating different people, but of course, when they're like, "Hey, you took on this person's um, identity," so he did at some point take a. He he apparently killed them, though that's up for debate as well, and then took their identity and like filled in as that person. So in our story, that's um, how he gets into the the kind of workshop of the taxonomy and um, the animals that we see at the end. So yeah. Uh, A lot of that is based on the very true elements of how he was captured, but we're really missing a lot of the French resistance, which just honestly didn't quite fit or click in a very cohesive way without introducing a host of new characters. And uh, for us, I think that would have made it Really unwieldy for a five-issue series, so unfortunately right. I think that was the biggest thing that had to go. There's definitely more about his background, his, um, you know, growing up, which we only kind of spend maybe five pages in a flashback with World War One, and then kind of some interviews with his family where you hear a little bit about his troubled past, but there's right. a ton more we could have done with that. Um, one of my favorite facts is that he Got his medical degree while in an insane asylum uh, after being thrown wild. out of World yeah. War One. Yeah, <laughs> they were like, "You're unfit to serve. Go be in this asylum." And he was like, "Well, now I have all this free time on my hands. Might as well become a doctor.
0: I'll get my so. doctorate." <laughs> <That's incredible. laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. Um, so, out. like, weird things like that. That you're like, "This is a crazy fact. I would love to be able to integrate it, but." you know, at some point there has to be a decision made, um, about, you know, not getting overwhelming for the reader in terms of the historical fact and keeping in mind that we're still telling a story. So, yeah.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. Cause it's, the book is definitely that, um, there's that balance between biography or documentary of, mm-hmm. of, you know, a serial killer of true crime, uh, but also like the historical reality of German occupied France, right? There's like a lot right. of, Detail that you have to give to each piece. I, I thought it was interesting how, you know, the, there's the through line of trying to catch the butcher of Paris throughout it. But really, we don't see him mm-hmm. like really until probably the end of the fourth and into the fifth issue. I think it okay. is um, where where you really start to, you know, give the give the actual killer the attention, which I I found intentional um, mm-hmm. and that and kind of segues into the next piece that i wanted to talk about which is you know there's you talk about this in the the essay you wrote in the back of um the back of issue one which i think is gives a lot of really good context but you know there's this moment during the trial where he's the 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 killer here marcel patois is like he's like a jokester right and he's like pretending to fall asleep and the courtroom attendees are actually laughing out loud in the court Mm -hmm. which is you know wild it's easy to see parallels i think into how our culture continues to find these sorts of figures kind of electrifying and captivating you know we got Ted Bundy, even like a lot of TV, right? Like HBO's The Jinx, Robert Thurst, like even <laughs> David Fincher's Mindhunter, you know, that sort of thing. Like there's this disturbing reality to reconcile with, I think, what a lot of us are fascinated by. You know, it's it's not like I'm condemning anyone for being into these genres. I watch these shows too. Um, is that something you're working to avoid in writing a story like this? Like bringing attention or or showing this person is too charming? I guess, how do you kind of work around that?
1: yeah um so I mean, this is a discussion we had initially creating the story was uh not wanting to become this genre of um I think I've heard it dubbed like serial killer porn. yeah, uh, we really just didn't, and again, like not condemning people for uh, enjoying those kinds of things or or you know, being interested. I've actually heard that there are studies about how it helps certain people that have anxiety um mm-hmm. to to listen to like podcasts or watch TV shows that have a very procedural nature to them, which yeah. I found really interesting. I was like, that's that's kind of a cool way to, I mean, it's dark, but like if that's something that's like good for you, that's cool. But we didn't want to be overly gory. We didn't want to overly focus on the killer. Um, we wanted to focus on how the father son dynamic were representative of a city that's trying to function under both occupation well, there's a killer on the loose. So there's two huge things going on um, that the city has to respond to. And in a way, we wanted the city to feel like it was its own character in the story, showing different places around the city, showing um, fighting in the city, showing uh, cabaret, which at the time people actually were writing plays or or performing short stories about the killer. It became really sensational in the moment. So... Um, You know, we portrayed like a very small snippet of a theater with the Nazis watching, just kind of always showing these people are ever present. And there are two things that just really permeated into culture at the time in this really dark chapter of history, which were, you know, the Nazis being um, all over the city everywhere. That's one way people were disappearing and kind of showing like the Nazis want this serial killer because, again, they're not really sure who he is. (laughs) Um, Like, you know both sides. They're like, is he Gestapo? Is he French Resistance? So the Nazis have heard that he is possibly French Resistance. So they want him. Yeah. Um, but you know, as you hear from the one guy in in the club, he's like, well, it sounds like he might be doing our job better than we are. Why why are we hunting him? But then there's this. We don't know exactly what his intentions are. So just in case, we need to find him before uh, before the French do. And uh, so there's kind of this race between like serial killers and the french to find a serial killer which is just crazy so the way the city kind of reacts and explodes in the midst of world war ii and the holocaust to finding this serial killer who has also targeted jews but for a very different reason it's really out of opportunity i think um yeah it's like a
0: like a convenience factor almost which is terrifying and, and yeah, gross. it victims. yeah it reminds me it's it's quite different but it reminds me of um the devil in the white city mm-hmm. there's a book about uh, Chicago's World Fair yeah I, I, I honestly can't I think it's HH something Holmes. Uh, is the killer Holmes yes thank yeah. you um it, that same sort of thing just where it's just like well here's this convenient <laughs> opportunity right. of everyone being distracted uh, World War II, obviously magnified because like you said you have this serial killer army Right. Yeah. Of of the Gestapo on a on a absolutely genocidal level. Um, but it, it like you wrote, I think in the in the back matter there, it's like, yeah, if even the Nazis think you're bad, you know, like <laughs> you're you're obviously a different a different breed of monster. Like it's yeah. it's something else entirely. Um I'm a little curious about in some of the themes that you raise here, I think, are there's obviously like the complexity of this killer using the the war as a a a cover essentially um but then you write about the kind of the complicity of of people um of a city i think the cabaret example is is one of the best because it's you know this sensationalizing this current active like terror as you know a song and dance routine um it it, and and again like there's modern parallels you can kind of see it uh i'm curious like and you show too it's not just you know, yes, it's it's Nazis saying, well, he's kind of doing her job for us. Um, but even the the protagonist, Detective Masso, he he kind of debates testifying against him mm-hmm. because the French have turned around and accused him of aiding the SS. So there's right. sort of like a, a counterbalance of national pride getting in the way. And it, it doesn't mm-hmm. ultimately. Right. Like he does the right thing. I'm curious what you see as the dangers of of complicity at work in this story. And if if you see them translating to like our own national situation in certain ways.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, I think one of the problems and, you know, it's really hard to critique like an American education system, but in a lot of cases, Mm -hmm. you're given numbers, right? Like you make sense of uh, 6 million people killed in the Holocaust, but that rarely gets broken into the amount of different people that were um, targeted by the Nazis, it wasn't just Jews. And then, you know, from there, it rarely gets broken down into individual stories unless you're reading something very specific, like Ellie Wiesel, um, who I mentioned in in my back matter as well. Um, these are people that I think helped to illuminate very specifically, like their own stories, and kind of make it very personal. And I think that's really important to do because it makes it makes that giant number something more than just a number or a bullet point in an article online, which, you know, it's really hard to take a a giant number and make that, like obviously six million is huge and that's not accounting for everyone that died at war. Um, So these are huge, huge figures. So trying to make sense of that, I think is really difficult for all of us. Um, So one of our intentions was to really make something that was a little more personal. you brought up uh, Devil in the White City and Eric Larson. I wrote that and I think he's he's really brilliant at doing something like that where he writes, um, I'm, I think it's In the Garden of the Beast, one of his other books where mm-hmm. he focuses on the US ambassador to Germany who was in Germany as Hitler was coming to power. So looking at him and his family and how they reacted to what was going on, which is fascinating and a way of viewing Hitler's rise to power in a very personal way that I had never done before. And so Kind of in the same way, how do you look at the occupation or what's happening uh, to the Jews during the Holocaust and other groups during the Holocaust? Like this was kind of a very personal way of saying here's how somebody was just trying to raise their family and here's how him and his family are trying to get by. But then also on the flip side you see some people uh, in the courtroom and this is this actually happened it's in the transcript from from the court case um, where the, uh, one of the attorneys says, you know, <laughs> how are you all just not registering this death? Like, some, have you no sanctity of, uh, interest in the sanctity of life? And the crowd laughs at him. Like, this is a joke. Like, how can you ask us this? We just watched millions of people die. Like right. you know, our neighbors. Like you become so desensitized to it that it's not. It's not a. Uh, condemn, uh, it's not me trying to condemn them for, uh, for their reaction to this, but trying to say here's how an entire society can get to this place when mm. you stop looking at it as an individual matter and you start looking at this bigger picture of like all right, well, it's happening, there's nothing I can do, I guess, you know, I'm just no longer going to care when the number goes from 6 million to 6 million and one or something. And yeah, I mean, how many of us have stopped really looking at the numbers for COVID um, or COVID deaths, like, you know, each day adding another number, it's like, well, there were already so many. Um, and even, you know, listening to the government say, well, it's, you know, twenty thousand is better than thirty thousand cases, or something. Right, like, well, right. actually, that's a that's ten thousand. Like, you know, you're 10, not people. Yeah, yeah, you're not making an individual case for why people should care. And uh, I know that that's a really difficult and bigger discussion about empathy. But you know, that was something that we we really wanted to try to showcase. Um, instead of outright saying, "Here's what you should do as an empathetic person, we just wanted to kind of show this is something that I think culturally happens to societies when you are put through a, um, a universal trauma um, mm-hmm. and kind kind of trying to just look at what that does to the society and how they react. And um, I mean, hopefully we we achieve that some. And the core case is really one of my favorites. A lot of what, Is being said, there is actual transcript. Um, I mean it's translated, so there are a couple variations on it, but Mm -hmm. uh like the the line of the smoke from the townhome where Marcel was killing people mixed with the flames of Auschwitz, that is an that is a direct quote as well um from the trial.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And I I definitely did feel like there's something about that courtroom drama and just the Mm -hmm. character at play there where it's like, yeah, this, I could read this for a long time. <laughs> like just this, you know, just because of the, I don't know, the intensity of what they're discussing. But then this, this individual's like, just absolute commitment to his, his lie to his truth you Mm -hmm. know it's it's a really interesting balance and then also just like being an American citizen like French courtrooms and just I'm always fascinated by the way these things play out differently and Um, that one
1: was difficult because we were like you know I don't see a lot of courtroom scenes in in comic books and they can be a bit static Um, but after doing you know the first I'd say two issues with Dean I was like oh no this is not gonna this is not gonna be static Um, and you know it's I mean, honestly, it's gorgeous with what, what Dean did with it, but even just the little movements and things like that, the acting of Marcel, you know, taking multiple panels taking your time in the comic book to hang up his coat almost like you know the way dean did it i was like i'm just so annoyed at this guy (laughs) like what are you
0: doing (laughs) but i I love the
1: way dean's storytelling really really helped dramatize just how much this guy was playing up his role and being on the stand and just being a complete and utter jerk in every way he possibly could
0: absolutely and and i think some there's some of the best kind of panel design and layout there too where mm-hmm. it's showing the the rage of this uh, individual where it, in once you know for a long stretch he's in command and he's taking his coat off slowly and making jokes mm-hmm. and then when the when detective Maso gets under his skin now here's the monster right yes. and it's it's the coloring everything about it is just this kinetic mm-hmm. energy um yeah it plays really well i i that's an interesting point you raise which is like yeah courtroom drama played out across comics is atypical because it would feel <laughs> static i it, this issue, I think it it moves quickly. Um it, it's definitely, you know, this is a story I sat down and I read it in a night kind of thing, right? You don't mm-hmm. it doesn't uh it doesn't take a long time, um, yeah. or or feel like it takes a long time, which is which is a good thing. Um, okay. So this is a really good book. I recommend everybody check out <laughs> The Butcher of Paris, uh, in terms of just the the work here, but also just like the story is um, you know, being based on on history here, it's something that is is worth awareness. And I think all the themes you raise are are definitely things we can analyze today. I think the COVID parallel is is uh sadly sadly very very accurate um i and on a totally different note uh so I, i've been reading some of your other work in preparation for this and I, I i'm wondering now is there an artemis and the assassin butcher of paris shared universe in <laughs> <laughs> because you're going back to, back to World War II.
1: i know i somebody brought that up with me and they were like do you just really like world war ii history and i was like <laughs> it's, it's actually not that. Um, you know, I I just actually I may have found Virginia Hall while researching Butcher. Um, mm-hmm. Like I may have come across kind of her footnote in the same way I came across Marcel's. And um, you know, for me, I was like, this is this is somebody that I need to like put on a sticky note and just save her name because I'm gonna come back to her. She's she's fascinating. Even just personally, I want to know more about her. Um, and then I was kind of also at the time working on this, this concept of time travel, which, you know, for me, somebody that just wants to do a lot of historical work would be something that would allow me a sandbox to just go all over the place. Um, and I came up with this kind of interesting concept of, you know, fact meeting fiction, which is something I do writing historical fiction, but really make that the central theme, which, you know, the question you started with, which is, how do you write historical fiction when you have so much facts, but also still a story to tell? Um, So Artemis and the Assassin is really just like what happens when those two things very bluntly meet each other. A completely fictionalized time traveling, almost superhero um, meets Virginia Hall, a real life world war II, the most decorated spy in U S history. And they travel through time trying to kill each other.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's also a really strong start. I really dug the first two issues, so I'm looking forward to more of that. Um, okay. You it, That actually ties into, so you had uh, A Man Among Ye mm-hmm. released from um, Top Cow in Image. I think it was just this last Wednesday, yes. mm-hmm. uh, actually, which is the story of exploring the life of Anne Bonny, a, mm-hmm. a real Irish pirate with, again, one of those, like, there's a lot of gray area in what's, yes. what's real. <laughs> right, <laughs> in, right. uh, in pirating, I guess, in general, I was kind of looking into. Yeah. Um, but like in general, you have a really strong year of, of new releases in comics and obviously with the pandemic there's inevitably a major change to the way kind of works get released and promoted obviously the con scene is just what is that now um how has your approach changed and and kind of how are you trying to adapt to having a lot of work in the market is there is there different stuff you're trying or testing out
1: um you know not not too much i've Kept in touch pretty regularly with um, a couple of local comic shops I know, at least in Buffalo and then some that like my parents go to in Tampa and, you know, just asking like what they can do. I've done a couple of um, charity anthologies. I know one was just announced for Aftershock, their Save Our Shops, Um, just little things where, you know, I'm happy to donate my time or resources in any any way I can to to help out the retailers. so I haven't explicitly done anything that's, you know, digital or anything like that because I think my focus was more on what I can do for for the retailers involved or somebody else that might be struggling. I know there were some um layoffs in the field or you know, people furloughed and things like that with these. Sure. I, I I think from what I'm hearing, a lot of those pencil-down orders have kind of started to get lifted, which I think is really nice um, as things are getting rolling again. So, um, you know, really just trying to donate my time. I got I got quite a few commissions, which was exciting. So I got a lot of artwork in the interim and uh, did a couple of, uh, you know, anthologies or things like that for, for the local comic shops. But um, yeah. so far, I think everything in terms of promotion, other than doing, you know, more online conventions, uh, most of the promotion stuff I think is still taking place seems like through social media these
0: days <laughs> yeah sure sure so much of it's going to be digital anyway um just the way things are I, yeah right. I, i've seen i've seen some interesting rollouts of obviously there's like online cons you know san diego moving online dc's doing a thing coming up soon this fandom experience whatever that's going to be i've yes. seen more of the bigger publishers doing like um releasing instagram comics which i think mm-hmm. is kind of interesting yeah um so cool. yeah it, it's i i think it's a a positive shift to try and explore new areas of of what the medium can be and where it can be accessed and that sort of thing um but at the same time i love uh i love local comic shops
1: yeah (laughs) yeah, you know
0: inherently it's fun to me um was that is that something you've kind of always been into or did you uh like were comics a dream of yours to write for a a good long time or was it something that um just kind of fit the bill in your own efforts to uh tell stories
1: I've always liked comics. Um, I came to this from academics. Uh, I'm also a professor at the University of Buffalo um, though I've been spending more and more time on on comics as you know uh, as my career Um, and it kind of you know I was doing a lot of academic publishing in graduate school and just kind of came to the realization that I just wanted to do something that was more creative so I was kind of testing the waters for a while and um you know just i sat in my room one night and i was like i wonder what it would be like to write a comic script and i tried it and i was like you know of course i know like that was probably not what a comic script should ever look like um or sound like or be like um but you know i i found other people in the industry to kind of help give me some pointers or tips or figure it out and um i think i was working a couple jobs at the time and one of the jobs i just allocated Um, part of the money to finding an artist that I could work with to make my first book and putting that together. And that is, um, that one got shopped and picked up by Black Mask, um, Double Within. So um, Man House and I connected early on and, you know, the kind of just rolled together on that story. And after I think we had one full issue, Black Mask was pretty interested in it and we went with them.
0: Nice. Very cool. Uh, What other work do you have on the the horizon that you are excited about and want to uh, want to share?
1: Um, Let's see. So uh, Tarna has been announced already um, for a fall release. And uh, that one I'm very excited about that is, um, you know, getting to dive very heavily into the heavy metal world has been really awesome. And -hmm. just kind of, you know, one of the things we're doing is really kind of Rebuilding the character in her world, so getting to be a part of some real universe building has been, uh, I think, just absolutely one of the most fun things I've done in comics. So that one's cool. A couple short stories for DC coming up and uh, some new announcements coming up probably by August for uh, my next two things. So uh, those should hopefully be cool, fun, fun announcements.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Um great. Yeah. This was a good talk. Uh I I had a lot of fun reading these books uh thank you. In, in preparation. I recommend people check them out. So thank you, Stephanie, for your time. Uh thank I really can. appreciate it.